If you haven't done so already, turn with me. Look in your Bible at 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Second Samuel chapter 2, verse 1, beginning at 1 and then through 4, it says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing. Heavenly Father, we come before you in your word. We ask that you would please nourish us. These things that you have recorded from our history were wrought by your providential spirit to speak to us not only lessons for life, but also food for our faith, our hope in Christ. We pray that you would help us to receive these things by your hand, to rejoice in them, and to be prepared to live out of them and to share them with others. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just four verses this evening, and as far as the descriptions of a coronation go, they are not particularly impressive. You think of within the lifetimes of some here, you can look back to the coronation of the Queen of England and the dramatic fanfare around it. And there will be some fanfare for David a little bit later on, about seven years after this event, when he's acknowledged by the whole nation as the king, and he enters Jerusalem. But at this point, not a whole lot of fanfare. And yet, it is important for you to understand, it's hard to overstate the significance of this event. In these few verses here, it's hard to overstate the significance of this event within the span of the book of Samuel. Remember, originally this was one book. We divided it into first and second but it was originally comprised of one text. And this is, in some ways, the fulcrum, the shifting point. Everything up to this point has been asking the question, who is going to be God's chosen king, the king after his heart? And then finally, David is anointed, publicly received as the king. And then from this point, there's going to be everything else. Eventually, David's fall, his being exiled, out of the presence of his people on the run, and then eventually restored. So this is a major point for David. It's a major point in the history of Israel. Though there is so little said here, yet it's a big part. And then also it serves as an integral part in the providential picture of God's redemptive work. One commentator, the author of the New American Commentary on this book, he says it this way. Consider David's conquest of the land a period of rich blessing, desolation and exile caused by sin, and then a return to the land following a time spent east of the promised land, all make the portrayal of this period of his life a tableau depicting the Lord's great blessings, judgments, and then restorative mercy towards his people. 
And so just as David is brought to this point of having been on the run and then brought out of the wilderness into a position of being acknowledged, having royal authority, but then falling and then eventually being brought back, so that is the story of God's people as a whole. We are a people who were given great blessings, we fell, and then he goes out and restores us in Christ. That's also the story of us individually, a people who are given great blessings and often forfeit them through our sin. And so this story of David being brought up to a high point and then falling and being brought back is one that has for centuries and millennia been a source of great hope to think of the story of David. But in these four verses this evening, the Holy Spirit leads us to focus on something in particular. And it's the way that David related to the timing and the promises of God's kingdom. Because you also are a part of a kingdom. Scriptures tell us in the New Testament, for instance, that if you have come to faith, you have been transferred out of the domain of darkness. That's no longer your realm. You've been brought into the kingdom of Christ and of the light. And so you need to think rightly about how you relate to the kingdom. And things that we're going to see here tonight speak very much to how we pace ourselves in the Christian life. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it under three main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. First, though, I want you to think about the context here. Maybe you weren't here last week. Maybe you haven't been here at all up to this point. In 2 Samuel, we're at a point where David has been for years on the run, about five years, fleeing King Saul, the king of Israel. And now he's just heard that Saul has been defeated in battle and killed along with Saul, his son Jonathan, as well as several of other Saul's sons. And so there's an opportunity for David to consider whether he might now enter back into the land. The major threat against his life is gone. And it would be natural for him to want to go back into the land, not just because he has friends and family there, but because of the promises associated with the land. Just as we take a special delight in the sacraments that the Lord has given to us, There's a sense in which we might say the entire promised land was one giant sacrament for God's people in that time. It was a picture of his promise to dwell with them, to be in the place where his tabernacle was. David wants to be in the presence of the Lord. And so that's his desire here. And naturally then, he would have some hope that God is going to make good on his promise concerning kingship. David had been anointed sometime earlier. What I want you first to consider with me is this, the kind of certainty that David has, the certainty concerning the kingdom, because this is going to get pressed back against the second aspect here of his uncertainty about the timing. This is our first main heading. Consider David's certainty concerning the kingdom. David had certainty. He had great faith, strong faith for several reasons, and they are very much connected to the kinds of reasons why we should have faith concerning Christ's kingdom. The first is this, that it had been prophesied long before that God would grant a line of kings from Judah. And David knew himself to be from that tribe. Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is there with his 13 sons, and Jacob is an old man, and God moves on him to prophesy over his sons, even as Abraham had done similarly. And as he prophesies over his sons, in verse 27 of Genesis 49, he prophesies over Benjamin, and he describes him in a way as would describe military prowess, that he'll be like a wolf. 
But he says nothing concerning kingship. And that would have been, for that reason, somewhat of a surprise when Saul was chosen as the king. Nothing was said about kingship from Benjamin. Only of Judah does the Lord speak of lasting kingship. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute or honor comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Plural. Not simply of Israel, but one of seeing the the surrounding nations and then the world acknowledge the authority of Judah. Certainly that never happened with Saul. Nothing like this. And so David has that to build up his certainty. What about him individually? He's from the tribe of Judah. So he knows there's going to be a king from Judah. But then the same prophet who had rightly anointed and foretold the rise of Saul comes to David, Samuel. And Samuel anoints David in the presence of many witnesses. So David can't even say, well, I was just dreaming that. No, Samuel's still alive. And you have all of these other family members who saw David anointed long before he becomes the king. Now, it's understandable the family would have kept quiet about that because they know what Saul is like. But when the time comes that Saul has died, it's not surprising that word would begin to spread throughout David's tribe among the Judahites that Samuel had indeed anointed him. And this would have given David great confidence concerning what the Lord was going to do. And then finally, think how many times God delivered David against all human odds. Of all the caves to hide in in Israel, of which I've been told there are a lot, of all the caves that David might be hiding in, therein comes Saul, and yet Saul doesn't catch him. You have story after story like this where God allows David to come to the brink of capture and death in order that he might discover and lean upon the Lord's kindness, his promise concerning the kingdom. The kingdom at the end of the day is not for David. It's for the glory of God and the benefit of God's people. And God is teaching David to understand and to believe in the Lord's covenant faithfulness to his people. Now, as those things gave David, a degree of certainty in his faith, how much more when we consider Christ? If there were prophecies fulfilled in David, there are far more that were made concerning Christ long before he came. It is a worthy point of study to consider the prophecies made, to consider the documentary evidence of the Old Testament prior to Christ's coming, to understand the great faithfulness of the Lord to provide us Christ in time. And then just as David was anointed by Samuel, you have In God's providence, the anointing of Jesus at the time when John the Baptist baptizes him. Remember, you have the spirit coming down and acknowledging and the voice booming like thunder from the heaven. Behold, my son, with whom I am well pleased. And God acknowledges that this is his son, the one who had been foretold. And then of all things to be delivered from, Jesus is delivered from death itself. I bring all these things before you to say that Seeing how faithful God has been to Christ should give you certainty when you think about the kingdom. There are times when when we look at the state of the church in the world, and especially of the most faithful portions of the visible church, where you go, how are we ever going to come back from where we're at? How do we move forward? And the reality is that God is faithful. Whatever he's doing, he has accounted for this, and the whole history of Israel was one of that, right? Of up and down, up and down. 
God is faithful, and so David is holding fast to God's promises. Hear Jesus' promise in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock. That's an encouragement, but it's also a command. Fear not, stop being afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That was stated in a context when the Roman Empire was dominating the whole world around Israel. And Jesus says, fear not, God is pleased, the father's pleased to give you the kingdom. And so they had every reason the disciples had and we have to trust And yet they did not know when or exactly how that was going to take place. And that's true in David's life as well. David had to live with a degree of uncertainty about how and when God would bring these things to pass. And this is the second main idea to come back to. This how do we wrestle with, how do we live in light of the uncertainty about the specifics of God's timing. Now, I bring before you, again, part of the context here. David had good reasons to want to relocate. Do you recall where he's living at this time? He's outside of the land, I mentioned that, but he's living in the territory of the Philistine king. This is something of a, you know, the friend, or rather the, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Because Saul was hunting David, the king of the Philistines saw David as a potential ally. David was, meanwhile, not actually at heart his ally. He was going up against him when the king wasn't watching. So he's somewhat crafty there. David wants to be out of the area of the Philistines. And if David actually does become the king over Israel, he knows that God has called him to be at war with the Philistines. So he has good reasons to leave. Also, Judah is geographically close, and this is where he has friends. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 26 says that he had had contact with, quote, his friends, the elders of Judah. Children, don't think elders like in this church are just older people. When it says the elders here, these are the the big shots, the people with authority among that tribe. David has friends in high places, so naturally he would want to go there. Now, had David been more like Saul, what do you think he would have done? I can tell you what I think he would have done. The commentators seem to agree, because it's not very sophisticated. He would have just went He would have went. He would have seized the opportunity. I've got a thousand men at my back. The other army has been decimated. I have friends in that area. I can build power. I can get in there and I can start to work politically. I can do all these things. I've got the crown, remember? He had the crown. He had the armband of King Saul. I can make this happen. I can bring the kingdom in. God told me I was going to be the king. And I'm going to serve the Lord by just plowing forward. Isn't that how sometimes especially when we're younger, how we approach serving the Lord. I know he wants me to do good things, and I know what the good things are, so I'm going to do them. I'm going to get them done. And sometimes we do that in the church. We have an idea, a vision for how things should be, and we just plow through other people to see things happen. I don't think that's been the history here, by the way. By and large, we've been spared that. But it happens. Instead, look with me at verse 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Now, how did he inquire? If you were to go back in 1 Samuel 22, there's the 
tremendously awful story of a bad man named Doag massacring the priests of the Lord. And one priest gets away, Abiathar. Abiathar gets away from the massacre, and he has with him the ephod, a priestly implement, a tool by which God would give direction to his people, particularly useful in the time before the scriptures were complete. And we are not exactly sure how the answer was given, but probably it was by process of elimination. In some way, the person would request and the priest would inquire, and the Lord did not always give answer, but here he did. And David inquires, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And apparently the answer is yes. It says the Lord said to him, go up. At that point, even then, David presses further. He says, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. To Hebron. Now, I can't tell you that I have certainty why Hebron of all of them. People have made suggestions. It was a fairly powerful city, a larger city in the south at that time. But that's not the point. The point in this is to recognize that we see in King David, or who will be the king, something of the heart that the Lord desires for his people. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And therefore, we learn aspects of the kind of heart Christ has and the kind of heart we're called to. Here we see humility and piety and seeking the Lord at every major junction, asking, Lord, give me direction. Where do you want me to go? How will your kingdom unfold? He doesn't rush in as a conqueror or a schemer, but he seeks guidance. I speak again to the young, but it applies to all of us. Often we have some sense of the way that we are being called. Based on your aptitudes, the things that you're particularly good at, based upon your preferences, the things that you enjoy. Oftentimes based on the apparent opportunities opened to you. And then we say, this must be the way that I'm called to go. But the Lord would teach us at every juncture, first seek his counsel. And if he gives you clear direction from his word, and through the multitude of counselors he's placed among us, heed that and go. And if his word leaves open an opportunity to go in any number of ways, then we take steps and we walk in faith that his word was sufficient. Had he wanted to say more, he would have. But sometimes this is the case. I remember speaking with a young man many years ago uh, who called me up to ask me about photography, about doing that as a business. I had done that for 10 years. I had gotten out of it, and he was wondering about getting into it. And he said, yeah, this is what I want to do. But then I asked him, and he was convinced, we had gone to the same Bible college, he was convinced that this was God's calling because he was very good at it. And I'll say he was a much better photographer than I was. He felt this is, a, you know, I'm, God has called me to this, and I have all these opportunities to meet people. Then I asked him more questions. What kind of photography are you doing? I was convinced it was not of a reputable kind, that he was involving himself with people and with things and glorifying things that he had no business doing. We are called to submit ourselves to the word at every juncture. Consider what it says in Psalm 37, also written by David. Psalm 37, verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Your first desire should be at every decision, God, will you, I desire to delight in you, please delight in my way. Not what will bring us most glory or most pleasure as we see it. Or Psalm 119, verse 104, I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. 
Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Practically, that means that if we don't know the word, if we are not familiar with what it speaks to the whole multitude of issues of life, we are walking in comparative darkness. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It doesn't mean that you don't know the Lord, but it means that there's some portion of your path that there's a big shadow on. And I want to tell you, the Bible, it's it's a complicated book in some ways. It's a big book, but it's totally knowable. The things that are essential to be known are clear, The Bible is not this thick. It's not an encyclopedia. The essential things can be known. And so, for anyone, especially those who are raised in the the arms of the church, there's really no excuse to be present among God's people for five or ten years and not have a clear hold on the fundamentals. David, from a youth, was seeking the Lord. The Psalms weren't written at the end of his life. He had an epiphany that he should love the word. His whole life he was cultivating by God's help, a love of the word. And this is what we're called to do with then as we live in uncertainty about when God will bring about things is to lay ourselves at his feet. If that's true in the, in the mundane things of life, it's also true. It's even more true when we think about how he'll bring about the unfolding of his whole kingdom. We don't know. We don't. I, I don't know whether or not he'll, say, cause Christianity to flourish again in this country. Or if he'll cause it to flourish somewhere else. Or how the wind of the Spirit works in the world. And it's not our business to have certainty. It's our business to do the business of the Lord. That's what Jesus says, even as a child, I will be about my father's business. As he's inquiring in the temple. It's not your business to know in the scheme of the next 10 years or 50 years or 100 years if things will grow worse or better. And yet, isn't that what so often occupies our emotions? Fear? Fear not, little flock. My father's plea is to give you the kingdom. Then be about the work of his kingdom and leave the details with him. Be passionate, but don't be fearful. That brings us then finally to consider third and final point, the incompleteness that David would experience for a time. The incompleteness of his coronation. Look with me at verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. We might say that David already had a right to be king. God had anointed him. But at this stage, a claim, acclamation, and acknowledgement of his authority only comes from one tribe, his own tribe. Now, it would be some seven years before, approximately seven years and some months, before all of the tribes would finally acknowledge it. And in between, there are going to be battles, there are going to be skirmishes, there's going to be political intrigue. There's going to be all kinds of moving about, jostling. David, through that period, is... Notable for the fact that he does not involve himself. So far as anything recorded in the word, he's not a schemer. He's waiting patiently for God to make good on his promise. Meanwhile, you have people like Joab and Abner. We'll meet them next week. Who are the definition of the arm of the flesh trying to bring about a kingdom. One in opposition to the true kingdom. One on the side of the true kingdom. And yet they're both 
willing to stoop to the lowest levels. That too, by the way, is the history of the church. Among the visible people of God, Christians are to blame at times for stooping to the worst methods, to violence, to all kinds of things. This has happened. If you, it's important to know that on some level, to not be overcome as you get a little older and maybe read a little bit of church history and find out professing Christians did some bad things. Yes, they did. And that this is nothing new. God's people are a fallen people who have been redeemed and are being restored. And we're going to see that throughout this, David, by God's help, remains patient. And that's not because he's just some great guy. It's because God was working in and through him to be a picture of Christ. And this is the way that the kingdom of Christ unfolds. In Christ's first coming, we experience his coronation in his ascension, his resurrection and ascension to glory, where at this time, though heaven knows he's king, on earth, relatively few truly submit to and acknowledge his authority. Relatively few, even among the professing church in the world, submit to him in the way that his scripture describes. He is patient. In fact, turn with me and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is describing the inevitable rise of Christ's kingdom. First Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 24, the apostle says, Then shall come the end when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom of God the Father, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's certainty there, but there's uncertainty about the timing. And the Lord, even as we move through the story of David is teaching you to live in that, to accept that. It's an object lesson, it's true history, and yet at the same time it's an object lesson of that patience, that endurance that we're called to. Even as I said at the beginning, it's hard to overstate the importance of David's coronation here and how it's pivotal for God's people. But in this one passage, may the Lord help you to do that. Sometimes that will rest upon you in your interactions with unbelievers. Where you sense, and it depends what circles you move in, I realize that some of us almost only spend time with other believers and relatively strong ones. Others of us, by virtue of our schooling situation, our careers, or our circumstances in life, spend a lot of time among unbelievers. And at times you feel like, where even is Christ's kingdom? I get it that I sense it when I'm here among God's people, but where is Christ's kingdom in the world? He must reign. And it's taken thousands of years, and the Lord is still driving that message home. Ask God's Spirit to apply that to you. 
seek his guidance at every step. By way of closing, I invite you to turn with me and look at one last passage and then we'll pray. In Romans chapter 15. It's important to tie together, even as I stated a little bit earlier in the service, David was a king over the the Jews, and the promise was concerning a king of the Jews. And yet God's purpose in the end was to raise up a king, a forever king, who would bring together all the peoples. And this is what Paul, a Jew of Jews, is explaining to the largely Gentile church living at Rome in the first century. And then note the way that he closes it at the end with a blessing as we consider this. Look with me at verse 8. He packs together all these prophecies concerning David as an image of Christ to come. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Bear in mind... When God gave his promises to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that promise was that he would be a blessing to not only them, but through them to the nations. I won't ask you to raise hands, but who here is not Jewish? You are among those people. I am among those people. Had God not in mercy overflowed, he didn't have to raise up another people. He didn't have to add To those elect Jews, a people from every tribe and tongue. But it says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. David being the one who spoke and yet anticipating that in truth, Christ sings among the nations. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then the blessing he gives, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Our hope is that Christ will rule, and he has begun his rule in you. His rule is not just making laws, it's bringing you to obey them, bringing people into faith. Christ will rule. He's begun it in you. Then think what it may be in glory to be set free entirely from all of the bondage of sin. May he give us that hope and help us to glorify him. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us back to this hope, these promises. We pray that Christ's rule and authority would be demonstrated in and through us. Lord, we pray to see his kingdom manifested throughout the world. For now, Lord, we pray for your patience as it seems like only a small remnant, a Judah, acknowledges him. We pray that we would be a part of that demonstration of love that even as David's family traveled up with him would not fear but went in faith with him back into the promised place. We pray that you would help us to be true companions to Christ, to stick near to him, not to loiter away from him. Jesus, we ask all of these things in your precious name, thanking you. 
Amen.